Hi, and this is the Physics High Podcast. A quick quiz. Do you, A, want to be inspired by science communicators? B, want to learn all about science education? C, want guidance on your scientific journey? Well, how about D, all the above? Now, stroke is a debilitating disease and treating the damage that it's caused is a real challenge. You could deliver drugs, but it's difficult to treat drugs directly to the brain. Stem cells is also a fascinating area of research, but how do you encourage them to grow and develop into neurotissue and then integrate them with healthy tissue that is already there? Well, my guest today is Kiara Bruggeman, and Kiara is working in the fascinating area of nanotechnology engineering, and her work at the Australian National University is working at ways of delivering stem cells and then encouraging them to grow in ways that they integrate with the healthy tissues that is already there. And her work has massive implications on improving stroke recovery. Now her work is interdisciplinary. She uses her physics, chemistry, biology, medical and engineering skills to achieve her outcomes. And she's a passionate communicator able to explain what she does in simple and yet understandable and engaging ways. And I think you're going to have a great time listening to Kiara today. Welcome, Kiara. Hello. Thanks for having me. Now, let's start off right off the bat. You are in the work of rebuilding brains. Now, I'm going to let you tell what that is all about. Okay. So the idea is when you've lost some of your brain tissue, either to stroke or neurodegenerative disease or brain injury, we need to get some new brain tissue in there, some new functional brain tissue. Um, and how we'd like to do that and how people have thought we might be able to do that for a while is to use stem cells because stem cells can turn into anything. Um, the thing with stem cells is they're, they do have a lot of potential. They can turn into anything. They're a little bit like teenagers in that way. You know, they, they could do anything they want, but left to themselves, they're lazy and they just sit around and they don't actually do that much. So they need some encouragement. They need physical support and and some instructions and nudges and kind of like a nagging parent that says, hey, go go be a brain cell specifically, like get off your butt and go do something. So what we do is we, we create that environment. We create a supportive and specifically encouraging towards brain tissue development environment for these stem cells. So thinking about your body overall, um, we we often divide it into cells. You know, your brain is made of brain cells. Your heart is made of heart cells. Your muscles are made of muscle cells. But there's a lot of stuff outside those cells. The extracellular matrix is what we call it. And it's basically the framework in which the cells operate. So if you think of a city and all of the people in a city are like cells, the extracellular matrix is kind of like the buildings. So all of the doctor cells are the ones doing all of the medicine, but they need a hospital to work in. A hospital on its own won't cure people, but you need that environment. And you can see that the different buildings are very different. So a school where teachers work and a hospital where doctors work are quite different. So what we're doing is making those sorts of buildings for the cells. So we're not making brain cells, that would be very complicated, but we are making an environment that mimics the extracellular matrix of brain tissue. So a sort of empty brain building. And then when we put stem cells into that environment, they get both the support, just just physical support, things like, you know, in a building you have different floors so people can, you know, exist in different spaces. Cells do need that physical support. 
So we provide that. And we also provide encouragement, or if you'd rather think of it as peer pressure, to become brain cells, because as they interpret their environment, it seems like everything else around them is being brain tissue, and they just want to fit in. They're teenagers. So if we can give them the support and trick them into thinking everyone else is being a brain cell, they will turn into nice, new, healthy brain cells. You just brought my memories back to when I did neurobiology uh, way back in uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, so we're really talking about the microglial cells, if I'm correct. And um, the fact is, is the, the, there's a real challenge in getting the treatment into the brain. What you're talking about is fantastic because if you've got the blood-blain barrier. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, so... <laughs> We, we sort of start with our, our material, our empty brain building that gets inject, uh, implanted into the brain. Our materials are actually quite funky. They self-assemble so we can push them through a needle and then they'll sort of self-form into this structure at the other end. But then once they're there, they're, they're sort of stuck there. And there are some things that you need constantly, that physical support, but there are some things that you you need different drugs, different biochemical signals at different times. And that's where the blood-brain barrier becomes an issue. So most drugs, even if you know if you have a problem with your heart or your liver, the drugs you get tend to go through an IV because we can target them. We can put a little molecule on the drug so that even though it travels all through your bloodstream, it stops at the liver because it, it binds to something that's specific to liver. Now we, we sort of can do that with brain. We could put those binding agents on but your brain is really picky about what it lets in from the blood. So a lot of molecules just won't cross this blood-brain barrier. And I mean, this is a good thing. You want your brain to be picky about what chemicals it lets inside. But when it comes to medicine, it means delivering drugs, therapeutic drugs at specific times is really tricky. So what we're working on is incorporating all of the drugs at once into that material that we, that sort of structural support scaffold material that we implant at the beginning kind of hide drugs in them, just smuggled them inside this material and molecularly program them so that they diffuse out at particular times so that you can get the drug you need right away to sort of calm down that initial inflammation and, ah, no, there's an injury response. That comes out right away. And then it waits a little while before we get the drugs that just support general brain growth or vascularization of the brain tissue to sort of connect it up to the blood supply because you do want to make sure that all of the steps happen in the right order. Otherwise, you're not going to be building good brain tissue. You've touched on biology, medicine, chemistry clearly here. Uh, since some of my viewers are more physics oriented, how are you applying your physics skills? Ah, so physics, this is an interesting one. Um, when, so we, I mentioned that we try to make these materials mimic the extracellular matrix, the environment of healthy brain tissue. And we want to mimic it in as many ways as possible. So as cells interpret their environment, any sort of feature that they can interpret should match brain tissue. And we normally think of that in terms of biology and chemistry because we're dealing with squishy human body stuff. So yeah, we have some biomolecules that are common to brain tissue and we have the, the pH and chemical properties of brain tissue. But actually one of the most important properties that really directs how, how cells interpret their environment is the stiffness, which gets into its, its material science or chemistry, but it's very much the, the physics that is what the cells are interpreting. So they will, they sort of, to move around their environment, reach out a little cell arm, grab onto the surface and pull themselves forward. 
and how much resistance they get tells them what sort of tissue they're in. So we need to be very careful when designing our materials to make sure that that, that physical property, the stiffness or the modulus of elasticity, if you will, uh, matches that of the brain tissue to make sure that it gets interpreted as brain tissue as cells move around. It's kind of annoying. We sort of wish that, you know, like why is stiffness the one that they care about so much? Why can't it be the biological properties? Nope, they even cells like physics. Now you've been working on this for quite some time now. I mean, if I'm correcting, your PhD was basically this area and now you're continuing on with this work. What success have you uh, had in the last six years in terms of the treatments? It's always interesting to talk about the success. So I will always be working in the lab on developing the new materials. I will never be the one in the hospital actually sticking this in your brain, which is good because if I was doing it, I would probably mess up your brain. Um, so it, it makes it kind of hard to see the progress, but you can track through so the stuff that I was working on at the beginning of my PhD, which was materials development at the time, has since gone through some biological testing with cells, some animal testing with rodents, and then is now in talk for clinical trials. So it's not yet in humans, but it is kind of in the process of getting into humans. Meanwhile, I've still been back in the lab the whole time working on more advanced ways to incorporate those drug delivery systems that we mentioned, because it, the whole development of these materials, it doesn't happen in big steps. It's all very gradual. So people imagine when I tell them about this approach that it's just going to go from nothing to a cure-all just immediately, but that's not how it's going to work. It's going to be nothing to something a little bit better than nothing to something a little bit better than that and a little bit better than that. So the first material that's going to, and in fact, some materials very similar to our materials are used in hospitals today. Um, ours are... They're a biomolecule that self-assembles into these nanofibrous structures that are rich with specific brain protein signals. Now, those aren't yet used in clinic, but ones very similar to those that are biomolecule self-assembling structures that form nanofibers that just have nonsense signals, they're not brain-specific, those are used in clinic. So one step up from that will be our brain-specific materials. One step up from that is just including one drug into the material. Those are the ones that we've had some really promising results. Um, in rodents, we've seen, oh, I should double check the numbers, but when we look at cortical atrophy, so the sort of volume of dead brain tissue in the skull, if you use stem cells alone, just like pop in some stem cells, they, they don't do absolutely nothing. I'm overly harsh on them. They do something and they kind of reduce, heal back maybe 20, 20 to 40%, I think, of the cortical atrophy is, is reduced by the stem cells. But when you use our materials in addition to that, that sort of supportive structural environment, you get an extra 20%. And then when you use a drug, a um, brain-derived or glial cell line-derived neurotrophic factor that we used in this paper, um, you get another 20% on top of that. So it's very incremental. You get a little bit more, a little bit more. You keep adding features to it. So there has been progress. Stuff I worked on at the beginning that was just, you know, me in the lab is now in talks for people in hospital rooms. But from my end, it's always going to be just me in the lab adding more and more things to these materials. What's your goal in, in the work that you do? See, it's interesting. I really, really love the materials end. I love the chemistry, the development. Um, I love that 
we're working on a molecular level. So we're working with things that you don't see day to day, but we've got enough understanding of how all of the little components interact with each other that we can kind of predict things. Um, if we could predict everything, it would sort of be boring. It'd be like, you know, walking down the street and seeing, you know, the wind blow some grass along or, or something falling and hitting the ground. It'd be very predictable. In the molecular space, we can make pretty good predictions, but sometimes things don't work the way that we're expecting. And that's the bit that really excites me. So I'm, I mean, I would like to see all of our materials get developed into therapies that save lives in hospitals. But what I really personally want is to just figure out why the materials all work the way that they do. So one mystery we've got going on at the moment is why our, our materials tend to protect cells better in their journey through the needle. So we talked about our funky materials, you can inject them and then they self-assemble. So we inject them with the cells. And it turns out that brain cells don't actually really like traveling at super high velocity through this tiny little needle from their perspective. It looks pretty mundane to us, but to a brain cell, that's a really rough ride going through that needle. And brain cells are a bit fragile. So a lot of them are just, they, they die through that process. They don't survive needles very well. But we know that our material protects the cells a little bit better than, than just normal fluid environments like water or PBS, if you're working with that. So we're trying to work out why it is that this happens. We know that the funky self-assembling nature of our materials does mean that they're not in that complete structure, that complete scaffold setup while it's traveling through the needle because it's, it's flowing, but it is still different from a regular fluid. So I'm hoping to actually use the synchrotron down in Melbourne at some point to analyze our nanofibrous materials in flow because most of the time we can only analyze them still and so what they would look like when they're in the brain. But I want to look at how they appear, how they work when they're actually in motion, when they're moving to figure out how they interact with the cells and how they keep the cells alive. And hopefully, and this is where it gets very, you know, interesting to me, is I don't necessarily want our material to be the material that saves lives. I want to figure out what is going on with our material. So if our material does something really cool and it's, you know, it's really great in that way, it may be not the best material in other ways, but if we can figure out what it is that allowed it to do that one really great thing, other people can add that into their materials. So instead of just making a bunch of materials that all have pros and cons, if we understand how all the materials work and we can see how it is that material A manages this thing, but material B manages that thing, we can put them together. So my goal is increased understanding of what's actually going on at a molecular level. You're really curiosity driven in, in many respects. Yes. So. Entirely, yes. <laughs> So what got you into that? What made you decide that this was the field, uh, obviously in the precursor uh, to your PhD, but may did it start earlier than that? Ooh, I guess, so there, there are two answers. There's, you know, as, as a young child, I got into science. There isn't one moment, there isn't um, a beautiful story about watching the stars with my father or something. It was just an ongoing theme of, science could do really cool things and make sense. So it, it was magic that was repeatable and reliable. So you could do 
and, and you could do counterintuitive things. Uh, I know there was one chemistry lab where we mixed two liquids and the volume, you know, if you mixed, you know, one part one, one part the other, the total volume wasn't two because they, they mixed together. And that seemed, you know, like, what? One plus one is two. We've covered this. I know one plus one is two. But it wasn't, you know, because science can make all sorts of magic stuff happen, but then it can explain why that happens and you can replicate it. Um, so the other times we'd mix two colorless liquids and you'd get a white solid out of it. And you're like, where did this come from? And if you understand the components in the system, you can work it out. So I, I really liked that. There was a sort of endless possibilities aspect because one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two. Who knows what it could equal? But it's also dependable, reliable, and you know that if you can make it happen, you can make it happen again. Getting into this field in particular was more, um, my, my undergraduate degree is in nanotechnology engineering. And it took, so I sort of, I picked nanotechnology engineering because it had a little bit of everything. So I didn't yet want to give up on any of the subjects because, you know, I really like physics. I really like math. I really like biology. I really like chemistry. I really don't like choosing between things. So I picked a program that had a bit of everything. And after five years, I can finally say what nanotechnology is, which is small, complicated things. And there are two ways that you can go about achieving that. You can take something that's very complicated already and make it smaller. So this is what people think of with like nanobots taking a computer or a car and making it into a teeny tiny version of that. And you get really funky technologies. But the, punt, the one that really interested me and that was very kind of new and unexpected to me was taking something very small and making it slightly more complicated. So this was working on the molecular level already. And when you're working on that scale, the amount of complexity you have to add to make something awesome is really minimal. Like you don't actually have to do that much. So one project I worked on as an undergrad, and I stress this not as a, not to say that I was such an amazing undergrad that I could do this, but to say that this is the sort of thing an undergrad project can do. It's not that difficult, is a, a smart delivery system for insulin. So the idea is with, with diabetics, you need to inject insulin fairly regularly. And that's annoying. The more times you stab yourself with needles, you don't want to keep doing that. So we thought we want to have some insulin particles that are kind of coated and inaccessible as they travel through your bloodstream and only release the insulin in an accessible way when there's actually a need for it. And you could do this theoretically with nanobots. You'd have to make thousands of tiny little robots and each one would have to have a little like insulin scanner on it, a computer to interpret the data and calculate exactly how much uh, insulin, or sorry, a glucose scanner to see how much sugar there was in the blood to work out how much insulin was needed and then release that amount of insulin from its little reservoir with its little gate. And it would be really, really difficult. Going the other approach, starting from the molecules up, we had a, a polymer molecule that kind of naturally forms a shell around little nano-sized droplets of insulin. You can imagine this like shaking up water and oil. So they don't mix, but if you shake them up, you get a whole bunch of little drops and they form into those little droplets. So this process happens on its own. And it really was just, we put the ingredients into a beaker and we stirred it and they will naturally form these little nanospheres of insulin coated with this polymer. 
and this polymer reacts with glucose. It's not an exciting reaction, it just happens. And when it reacts, it changes shape ever so slightly, which means when you inject these particles into your bloodstream, they will mostly be blocking the insulin. So they're, they're a nice little shell. So they're protecting the insulin so the insulin can't get out. But when they come across glucose, they react, they change shape a little bit, and the insulin gets out. So you automatically have a live proportional insulin delivery system everywhere in your bloodstream. But the actual, like if you drew it in a circuit diagram, it's just a single switch. It's just one molecule that says, I bond with glucose. There's no glucose around. I bond with glucose. And that, that amount of like awesomeness that you could achieve with such a minimal amount of effort and kind of intervention from us was really fascinating. So I really like working in that space where instead of trying to build everything from scratch, like you do with computers and nanobots and stuff, and don't get me wrong, I love my computer devices, um, but there's, there's so much work. You have to make everything yourself. If instead you work with molecules, you, what you need is to understand what's going on. You need to understand what's in all the components in your system and how they interact with each other. And then you just tweak things a little bit. You add, you add one little thing or you change the temperature and you know how that will change how the interactions happen and what the end product is. And you can make these amazing materials and amazing outcomes out of very little work. You just, I, like, I've never heard, I mean, I've got a friend who's got uh, diabetes and in the injections. And so when I hear what you do, I, I'm just totally fascinated how the best solution is, in many ways, the simplest solution. Uh, and and, and uh, the challenges now is to find more of those situations where you can do that. You don't, yeah, that you don't have to start from scratch. It's amazing. Now, um, going back to your, your childhood, my understanding too is you're small, you grew up in a small town in, uh, in Canada near a nuclear f- uh, reactor, in, in fact. But in many respects, yes. that actually had a positive impact on you. Do you want to elaborate on that? Oh, yes. Well, you can see my hair. <laughs> uh, no, that is not from the nuclear power plant. Yes. Um, so I grew up in I grew up in the little village of Inverhuron, which is outside the town of King Carden, which is right by the Bruce nuclear power plant. Um, at the time, it was the largest operating nuclear power plant in the world. And growing up in that town meant growing up in a town full of engineers, um, a town full of people who really appreciated the role of science in their lives, science and engineering and technology, and also the the sort of time frame that you have to operate on in the nuclear world is really interesting because it's not it's not action movie fast. So, you know, if you're if you're a pilot, if you're in a plane and the plane is going down, you need to deal with that now. You have, you know, half an hour or an hour before everything goes kaboom. And if you're in an advertising department for the government, you probably have to deal with something within a year, but projects always change. In nuclear, you have to deal with things kind of within a couple of days. That was so. I, I did work at the plant for a while. Actually, I, I spent eight months working there, and that that time frame was really, really interesting to work in because it meant you couldn't procrastinate. You had to deal with things, but you also weren't in crazy mad stress mode. You were in okay. This is this is a problem. 
let's take the time to think of what our options are, really explore all the possibilities because you did have enough time to do that. You could work out the best solution and then implement it and then get it done. So that was really cool. So, and I think that kind of went throughout all of the plant and then kind of into the town a little bit that we were all a bit more pragmatic engineering minded, which was nice. So we all are able to, to think, explore, think scientifically and come up with good ideas. And as respect to um, the fact that physics particularly is notorious being quite uh, uh, unbalanced gender-wise. And so the, 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 the exposure that you had at the nuclear power plant, which is probably not the right choice of words, the exposure to the science at the nuclear power plant <laughs> really uh, freed you up because everyone was basically in the same boat. Yeah, that was interesting. So I'm not going to say that I'm immune to all of the societal gender roles things because, you know, our, our TV still came in from Hollywood and everything. But at a very young age, it was just everybody works at the power plant. Everybody's an engineer. Everybody's mom and dad are engineers. Not quite everyone. And I think even in our town, there was still gender discrepancy, but it was small enough that it really wasn't unusual for anyone to focus on STEM. Um, both of my parents were engineers and we, mm. yeah, we had... Engineering was a very big thing within our house. Uh, I find it funny looking back. My parents really didn't love my my love of plush toys, which continues to this day. I love plush toys so much. Uh, so it was very difficult to get them to ever buy me a plush toy. But if it was like a computer, sure, because computers are like technology or like science experiments or books that you could read anything about learning because it was just valued so much. Uh, and it wasn't until kind of getting older when you start to really get more media, more influence, that I became more aware of, not so much aware, but that those gender stereotypes were able to influence me. But by that point, I'd already had a pretty strong momentum in the I was definitely always going to do something in STEM. And it was kind of past the point of no return that it was, oh, hey. Why, why aren't there so many uh, other girls here? <laughs> like, I mean, too late now, but yeah. So I'd say, yeah, it's, it's helpful to be able to get established in a, I am definitely comfortable being sciencey minded before you start being aware of all the stereotypes and ways that people will see you. Why did you move to Australia? <laughs> um, mostly on a whim. So... Why I moved to Australia and why I've stayed in Australia are two different questions with very different answers. Um, moving to Australia was honestly because I came to the end of my undergraduate career. I wasn't yet really keen on any particular job. Um, and I thought, well, I'd, I'd kind of like to, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to do something different. I want to do something new. And going to Australia, that was that was cool. It was it was sort of the thing in the back of my mind since I was quite young, um, because my birthday is in December, and I always prefer the summer. And so, like, if I went to Australia, my birthday would be in the summer, and there'd be kangaroos, and they'd hop around with me. Um, so we got to the end of undergrad, didn't really have a career in mind, but saw the process for a student visa to come do a PhD, and I thought, you know, I'm I'm not yet 
ready to give up on learning and leave school. So let's go do more school and do it with kangaroos. And then staying in Australia because I really do like the the atmosphere and mindset here. I think um, there's there's not a big difference between Canada and Australia, except for the weather, obviously. It's a lot warmer and nicer here. But the it kind of feels like the difference between when you're having a really stressed out day and things are just ah, like getting on top of you and you sort of pause and you take a deep breath. <sighs> Before and after that breath are Canada and Australia. So you're just a little bit more stressed, a little bit more America-y in Canada and a little bit more relaxed. She'll be all right in Australia and you can just actually enjoy the journey which now that I say it does line up with my approach to science as well. I'm, I'm not that focused on the outcomes. I'm focused on like learning, answering questions, figuring stuff out, that journey. I love, I've listened to your, uh, your three minute PhD that you presented in 2015 uh, and other places and here as well. Uh, I love the, the analogies that you used. Uh, I mean, you clearly, you know, the, the rebellious teenager as your stem cells. Yeah, and you, you talk about smuggling drugs into, you know, into the brain and so forth. You're clearly very gifted in breaking something down that's quite complex to a way that others can understand. So science communication clearly is an important thing for you. Why is it important? I think, as, as you mentioned with the, the analogies and breaking things down, this is a byproduct of how I understand things. So I'm, I'm really glad science communication exists because it's somewhere that will appreciate that because even if I wasn't doing any science communication, I would still be breaking it down into these analogies. I would still be working out the chemistry into things that I can understand on a sort of human anthropomorphized level. So that's kind of why it was always destined to, to sit that way with me. Why it's important, I think because science shouldn't be difficult. Um, it's, it is complex and there's a lot of intricacy and sometimes specificity is required. But if you're really, really understanding it, then it should be explainable. It, it, you should be able to convey the key aspects or the relevant aspects of what that big topic is that you understand to someone who's asking a question about it. And I think we often get this idea, we of we fellow scientists and academics, we think that we need to look smart and we need to use big words and be like above the general public because, you know, we're so fancy. We have our PhDs, you know, you, you cannot speak on my level because I'm so smart. And that's just not true. Um, and it's, it doesn't help us either. Um, so... Imposter syndrome is a big thing in academia where pretty much every academic, so every smart friend you have, I think everyone gets this to some extent, where you're, you're constantly afraid that at some point someone is going to jump out and call you on how you don't belong here, how everyone else is smart, but you're not really smart. What are you doing here? You, you're, you don't belong with all these other smart people. So we all have that and we all feed it. We all use our big words and try to sound extra specific and technical and fancy. But that just inhibits other scientists from understanding what we're talking about. So I've been to, I go to conferences to present my research and I'll present to people who are in very, very similar fields to me. They're, it, it'll be different, but it'll be 
So my material is a self-assembling peptide hydrogel, and I use it for neural tissue regeneration after stroke. And maybe the next presenter will be someone using a different kind of hydrogel, maybe a functionalized PEG hydrogel in applications in cardiac tissue. So those are very, very similar. We'll break it down. It's, you know, hydrogels for tissue repair after some sort of injury. But I will have no idea what's going on in their research because it's so different because we focus on such specific things. So I honestly think the science communication isn't just important for the general public. It is important for the general public and it's, it's fun and it's wonderful. And I love for everyone to understand a bit more about science because science is just awesome and deserves to be understood. Like you see people like talking about, I don't know, the Kardashians or which celebrity is marrying which other celebrity. And you think you're like, no, there's much more interesting stuff going on. Have you heard of molecules? <laughs> um, but it's also important for the progress of science. Like we need to learn mm -hmm. to get go out of science a little bit and just communicate the information. And generally speaking, though they won't say it because they have to be fancy, the academics will also appreciate if information is being conveyed to them in an understandable way. I'm going to ask it. I'm basically oh, the next. What? I realized uh, I'm going to put a funky virtual background on so you can see my materials. There we go. These are the nanofibers. So these are my nanofibers and my smile <laughs> is about 100 nanometers. That's the scale bar. I love that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. You mentioned the imposter syndrome, which will make my next question sort of tie in there. Um, you've been accepted as a superstar for STEM. Uh, your face comes up the first on, on, the, on the website, which in one sense, I assume you are going to go, oh my goodness, I'm accepted into this big program. But it's really important too, in terms of, of raising uh, the visibility of what women are doing in science. How important is that to you? It's, it's something that gets more and more important to me as I, as I go through my career. I think I, I used to, actually, when kind of ashamed to admit this on a thing that's going to be broadcast out, but I used to be one of those people who, who thought it really wasn't important um, and who kind of actively had that idea of, well, I do it, so if other women aren't doing STEM, then, you know, they've failed. And I've more and more, like, as I've lived in this world more and heard more of the data, more of the research, and kind of understood how little things can have cumulative big effects, I, I see it as much more of a big problem. And because of that, I really understand how it can be disregarded, how people can look at the issue and think, oh, well, that, that's not really a big deal because you, you don't see all, all the little factors and, and how they all add up. You can see there are lots of instances where people obviously don't mean anything negative, but don't understand that, you know, how you intend something is not necessarily how something is received. And you do have some responsibility to be mindful of what your words mean in a like modern context. Um, you have lots of instances where, you know, it wouldn't be a big deal if it happened once, but because it just keeps happening, it's, it's a bad thing. Um, one, one that comes up a lot for me is you see in group work, 
the female student will often be the one doing the admin, the organization, the secretarial work, but it's never because, or not that I've seen at least, it's not because the, uh, the guys in the group say, oh, well, you know, you're a woman, you should do this. It's because they allocate tasks based on everyone's skill set. But the thing is, the female students have always been assumed to be good at that. And so they have had a lot of opportunity to develop those skills. And then by the time you get to undergrad, it sounds so reasonable. It says, you know, Jen is really organized. It makes sense that she handle all of this stuff. And, you know, she's willing to because she's used to it by now. And you don't think about how all of those little things impact and add up. And there's lots of like stuff you really wouldn't think of. I worked at the research office for a while and we had one female researcher who won a very competitive grant and wanted to, you know, travel to Australia now to take up that grant and start doing this research. But she couldn't because she was pregnant and the pregnancy meant she couldn't do the x-ray to confirm that she didn't have tuberculosis that was required to get a visa to come into Australia. And each individual step sounds very reasonable. Like, of course we need to screen for TB and of course you can't get the x-ray if you're pregnant. And But it means for her, it, it really sets her career back and it's really difficult to keep going from that. So all of those, all these little tiny things or little understandable things that add up and have a cumulative effect that really does make engineering and science, technology, engineering, and medicine just not as supportive of an environment for women or that kind of supports them doing other things. It gets, so I, <laughs> following the trajectory, I imagine that in another 20 years, I'm going to be one of those like radical rebellious people who's just like, no, we need change. Um, I think a great, a great quote, and I'm probably going to misquote it, from uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, outside of STEM, but at one point she was asked, you know, because she was a, was a strong gender advocate, you know, how many women do, like, do you want to see on the Supreme Court? Like, what's the appropriate number? At what point will you say, you know, yep, we've done it, we've tackled the gender inequity, we're all good now? And the, the answer was something along the lines of, until they're all women. And it wasn't that she wanted the court to be full of women, it's that she wanted for that to not be a noteworthy thing. Because we don't really bat an eye if it's all men, but we do bat an eye if it's all women. So until it honestly doesn't get noticed, until it's not noteworthy for it to be a woman in this role, then there's still a lot of a problem going on somewhere. That issues uh, that you talk about, the uh, almost the stereotypical roles that girls play is clearly not just in university levels. As a high school teacher, I see it all the time. So I find that I, my solution to that, if, if messed as possible, is that I will form groups, lab groups that are all female or male so that they do get the opportunity to not fall into the classic, oh, well, you're taking the notes and the boys are doing the experiments. Talking about students then, if uh, you have high school students, uh, and let's, let's talk about the girls, who are interested in going into a career in science, what advice would you give them? Okay, I'd say if you are interested in a career in science, follow that interest. I am a strong believer that the interest is what should lead you, not, not the outcome, not the what you'd like to accomplish in 40 years time, but what will actually get you out of bed and off to work tomorrow. So what is it that you enjoy doing day to day? 
And also thinking about, you know, if, if you imagine a career, a 30 year long career, and you look at today versus 30 years ago, you know, smartphones were not a thing. Um, the pandemic was not a thing. There are lots of things that, like you wouldn't have been able to predict what industries and what types of jobs existed and the tools you'd be using to do those jobs. Lots of people going into like who wanted to help medical issues, but were really interested in computer science who followed their interest in computer science can now solve medical problems with a lot of bioinformatics because we just have so much more data that you can make real contributions to medicine through data analysis. A really cool example of this, just, you know, while I'm here, is the analysis of Google search patterns to identify previously unknown side effects of drugs because you just can't, in a lab, test absolutely every possible combination, possible biochemical pathway but you can pick up looking at the search patterns, be like a, a statistically disproportionate number of people seem to have this on their mind while thinking about this drug. Maybe we should look into this, which is not like it's useful for identifying the side effect, but also useful for sort of flagging potential biochemical pathways in our bodies that we didn't know about that might have implications in other drugs or just in understanding how the body works. But back to the main point, the follow your interests because whatever it is that you're interested in that you will be willing to keep doing that you you know when you pr are presented with a problem in that field you're motivated to try to solve it because you enjoy working in that space you if you follow that if you get good at that if you get really comfortable working in that space there will be a way to apply that to whatever big picture problem you want to be working on whether it's medical or climate change or I don't know if you want to go into like corporate world or politics and policy, whatever big picture it is, you don't need to follow the normal path to get there. Follow what you're interested in and there will be a way to make that connection. Our last question is a much more lighthearted question. Now, what is something that you're really passionate about but that a lot of people may not know about you? Maybe something you can share and teach us uh, that sort of sells, tell, Tells us a little bit more on the other side of Chiara Brigerman. Totally outside of science, another uh, activity that I do is medieval reenactment sword fighting, uh, which is just a whole lot of fun. Um, that's very physical, so I'm not sure how much I'll teach that over a podcast. But I did have something on my mind. It's sciencey, but it's not my area of science. I'm going to note a little bit about the solar mill or radiometer. You, you've probably seen one before. It looks like a, a sort of glass bulb with little black and white squares inside it. They're all black on one side, white on the other, and they, they spin around. And what I really love about this, and I'm, I'm not going to actually explain how it works because every time I do, I have to look it up and go back over and teach myself the physics because it's not my area. But what I really love about it and what I want to talk about it is how many different known, accepted, understood explanations of how a radiometer works there have been. So the radiometer, it's, it's got a, a partial vacuum inside this globe. You put it in sunlight and the black sides of the squares all heat up from the sunlight a lot more than the white sides on the other end, and it spins around. And there have been, I think, four accepted main theories on how it works. 
And these are, you know, like the smartest people of the day have published papers in physics journals explaining how the radiometer works. And then later on, as technology improved, um, so one of the earlier theories relied on there being such a vacuum in there. So it was just the light. But as vacuum technology got better and people were able to make radiometers that had a really high vacuum, they found that they didn't work at all. So the explanation didn't make sense and it had to be dependent not on a total vacuum, but on a sort of low vacuum. So that there's a bit of a vacuum, but there is still something in there. So the, the bit of a vacuum means you don't have a lot of air resistance to that movement, but there being something in there means that you do still have some air molecules to create some currents to move the veins around. A lot of science is being wrong. So there have been more accepted theories of how the radiometer works that are incorrect than there have been that are correct. And we're just assuming the one that's out there now is correct. And I, I love this because that is how science should be. Science shouldn't be, as I mentioned, about using big words and about sounding smart. It should be about trying to, to use the information that you have to work out what's going on and being really willing to accept when you're wrong or accept when things change that you need to have a new idea of how things work. So this is not so much a topic, but a philosophy that's really important to me, that it's not about being right. It's about applying your understanding and seeking new understanding, just trying to tinker with the universe and figure stuff out and see what happens and be proven wrong, because that's what makes it exciting and interesting. Well, it's been a fascinating and very enjoyable conversation with you, Kiara. Uh, you're clearly passionate about science, about your work, and very excited about the future implications of your work, specifically with treating uh, victims of stroke. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to get notifications of upcoming interviews. And you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at Physics High. My name is Paul from Physics High. Till next time.